the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to this Wednesday edition of The Dan Proft Show. Thank you for joining us. You can follow us, danproftshow.com. That's where you get podcasts. You can also get podcasts at Spotify and iTunes. And on social media, including Parler, of course, at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show. Uh, we're going to speak with uh, Joel Pollack, who's a Harvard-educated attorney and also a senior editor at Breitbart, uh, momentarily. But uh, just some comments on the Texas suit that was filed and now has been docketed by the Supreme Court. What it alleges, uh, what I think is likely to be the outcome. Uh, and, and before we even get to that... Uh, Trump yesterday at his Operation Warp Speed vaccine summit, his comments about, uh, well, why aren't you in response to the question about enlisting some of the Biden transition team members uh, with respect to vaccine infrastructure development and distribution? To me, his response recognized where things are at very clearly, very soberly. On the one hand, his position has not changed in terms of what he thinks happened in this election. On the other hand, he recognizes that he is going to need an intercession by the Supreme Court of the United States or state legislatures to obtain the relief that he seeks to get the justice he believes he's entitled to. This was President Trump responding, describing. The next administration will be the one ultimately that implements a lot of the distribution of this vaccine and will oversee much of the future of the way Operation Warp Speed goes forward. Why not include members of the Biden transition team as part of this summit that you're hosting today? Well, we're going to have to see who the next administration is because uh, we won in those swing states and uh, there was uh, terrible things that went on. So we're going to have to see who the next administration is. But whichever the next administration is will really benefit by what we've been able to do with this incredible science, uh, the doctors, all of the people that came up, the lab technicians. The, wor- the work that's been done is incredible, and it will be incredible for the next administration. And hopefully the next administration will be the Trump administration, because you can't steal hundreds of thousands of votes. You can't have fraud and deception and all of the things that they did. Now, let's see whether or not somebody has the courage, whether it's a legislator or legislatures or whether it's a justice of the Supreme Court or a number of justices of the Supreme Court. Let's see if they have the courage to do what everybody in this country knows is right. Well, we'll see Uh, the Texas motion and and brief make a a novel uh, and plausible claim. Basically, that the the Texas case argues that under the Constitution, the Constitution's electors clause, to be specific, state legislatures have plenty of authority over appointment of each state's electors, which we've discussed. 
states, elections are state and local matters. Generally speaking, they have to comply with constitutional protections, of course. But the state legislatures have in their power that the remedy that the Trump campaign or the state of Texas in this case seeks. And that's important to remember to each of the defendant states, the administrators of their elections, for example, secretary of state unconstitutionally changed the rules governing this year's election without legislative approval or ratification. These changes favored some voters over others in violation of the Equal Protection Clause. Uh, This is, for example, the curing of ballots is what they're referencing. The indefinitely confined and what curing of ballots in Pennsylvania, some counties do it, other counties don't. The indefinitely confined, the expansion of that definition in Wisconsin could be another example. And lastly, in each state, the number of ballots that were counted pursuant to these unconstitutional changes in election procedures exceeds the margin of Biden's alleged victory. So they want um, basically these four states, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Georgia, and Michigan to be enjoined from sending their electors to vote when the Electoral College meets on December 14th. Uh, The uh, Texas complaint argues none of the looming election deadlines are constitutional. They are all within the court's power to enjoin. Indeed, if the court vacated a state's appointment of presidential electors, those electors could not vote on December 14th. If the court vacated their vote after the fact, the House of Representatives could not count those votes on January 6th. And any remedial action can be complete well before January 6th, when the House of Representatives meets. Indeed, even the swearing in of the next president on January 20th will not moot this case because review could outlast even the selection of the next president. It's plausible, uh, but I think it's unlikely to succeed. And, um, and, oh, by the way, I should mention that uh, the Missouri Attorney General, Eric Schmidt, has uh, joined the battle with Ken Paxton, the Attorney General of Texas, filing this case. Uh, Eric Schmidt tweeting yesterday, election integrity is central to our republic, and I will defend it every turn. As I have in other cases, I will help lead the effort in support of Texas's SCOTUS filing today. Missouri is in the fight. So there you go. We'll see if uh, additional states uh, fold in. But you still have the same problem. And it, it sort of boils down to this. What I said at the outset, state legislatures have within their power, their plenary power with respect to electors, the opportunity to provide the remedy that the state of Texas and the Trump campaign seek. They're choosing not to exercise power they have. So what you're asking the Supreme Court to do, and I would say particularly with the originalists on the court, the conservative justices, you're asking them to substitute the court for these state legislatures, and it's important to note plural. And so the dynamics are different in each of the four states. The assertion, the allegations of unconstitutional activity are different in each of the four states that have been identified. And you're asking the Supreme Court to substitute their themselves, the court, and its powers in each of those four states over and above what the legislature can do but is choosing not to do. They're just not going to do that. The Supreme Court's not going to do it. And why? Because the state legislatures aren't exercising power they possess. And why aren't the state legislators, legislatures exercising the power they possess? Well, I think it's fair to argue 
that uh, these Republican-controlled state legislatures in these four states don't feel either like the case has been made sufficient to take such dramatic action, or they don't feel, it, even if they believe the circumstantial, largely circumstantial case that has been laid out by the Trump legal team over the last several weeks, they don't have the political cover. Remember, these are elected officials. These are politicians. They're accountable to their constituents. They stand for election every two years, the state reps at least. Uh, and they don't believe like they have the political cover to take such dramatic action. So that's where I think it's left. And what I, I, I think, you know, I was talking to a law professor, a friend of mine, uh, University of Chicago is now actually a law professor in uh, in Ireland. And um, he I, I think he had a good insight on this, too, just in terms of what's happening right now. Uh, what you see is is lawfare, sort of as Trump experienced it on the receiving end for the past four years. This is uh, to set up a narrative for 2022 and 2024, the new rules and the, and the norms. It's to, um, you know, after this is ostensibly settled the way that I think it's going to be settled, adjudicated the way I think it's going to be adjudicated. Trump folds in with Kevin McCarthy to campaign for congressional candidates, House candidates he likes over the next two years in advance of the 2022 election so as to help Republicans regain control of the House. And then you have the House and the Senate uh, protecting essentially the Trump policy agenda and policy accomplishments in large measure. Uh, So you've got Joe Biden with a two-year window and uh, only a narrow majority to work with in the House. So can he do the transformational things that uh, the socialists want him to do? Well, he's on a clock at minimum, and he's got to get them to operate in unison, which they've demonstrated they're not always interested to do, and they've got to do so in in relatively relative hurry. I mean, uh, two years is a long time, but it's not that long a time. And, uh, and, 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 And also concurrently put pressure on these states where at least you have Republican-controlled legislatures to change the way elections are administered in their states so we don't have a rerun of what has transpired in Pennsylvania and Georgia and Wisconsin and Michigan and arguably Arizona and maybe arguably Nevada as well. We don't have a rerun of that in 2022 and Obviously, 2024. That, I think, is the real play here. The lawfare play, setting up the narrative and the pressure that is going to be brought to bear on socialists on the one front and on Republican-controlled state legislatures on the other. We'll uh, pick up this discussion with Breitbart's Joel Pollack right after the break. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back to the show yeah uh, eric swalwell's uh, china doll as it were this uh, story from axios about uh, a suspected chinese matahari who was part of Chinese communist espionage operations 
allegedly slept with at least two Midwestern mayors while cozying up to a slew of polls across the country in a bid to infiltrate the U.S. political system. This is interesting, and because Swalwell is such a goof, remember his ill-fated run for president and his ham-handed attempts at applause lines and humor during the couple of debates he participated in before dropping out. So, yeah, that's sort of almost for prurient interest, but it does speak to this larger issue. Uh, the bigger story yesterday is the speech given by a Chinese academic, and uh, that's what I want to get to. Uh, he's the vice dean of School of International Relations at uh, Renmin University. Highlighted by Trump on Twitter, it was tackled uh, in part by Tucker Carlson yesterday. This academic said, we know that the Trump administration is in a trade war with us, so why can't we fix the Trump administration? Why did China and the U.S. used to be able to settle all kinds of issues between 1992 and 2016? I'm going to throw something out that may be a little bit explosive here. It's just because we have people at the top. We have our old friends who are at the top of America's core inner circle of power and influence. And that includes Wall Street. During the U.S.-China trade war, Wall Street tried to help. This is the professor speaking. And I know that my friends on the U.S. side told me that they tried to help, but they couldn't do much. But now we're seeing Biden was elected, the traditional elite, the political elite, the establishment. They're very close to Wall Street. So you see that, right? And then the audience applause. We're back in business, baby. If you're wondering why our political class has stood by and allowed the Chinese government to degrade this country and our way of life, why they've stood by as the Chinese government has flooded the United States with deadly opioids that have killed hundreds of thousands of people, or have stood by as the Chinese government ripped off billions of intellectual property from our companies, there's your answer. Earlier this year, the chairman of Harvard's chemistry department was arrested for taking $50,000 a month from the Communist Party of China in return for sending secrets and referring top scientists to Beijing. It barely rated as a scandal. You may not even be aware it happened. Why? Because so many are on the take, in effect. Donald Trump was an impediment to this very lucrative arrangement. And for that reason, Di Zhongsheng explains in the video, America's most powerful elites, and he calls them that, got to work on electing a new president. And uh, why was that Hunter Biden story spiked? Donald Trump has complained about Hunter Biden and his ties to the Chinese government. Those are real. He just confirms. So now you know why you weren't allowed to talk about Hunter Biden's laptop, why big business aligned as one, the tech companies and the rest, to suppress that story because they were implicated in it. And this from Tucker Carlson's interview with Tony Bobulinski, former business partner of Hunter Biden's Chinese venture. And remember what Bobulinski told Tucker Carlson and had uh, some documentation to back it up. And in a document that you guys have, and uh, I think it's been provided to, you know, to the world, the Chinese referenced that because of their trust in uh, the Biden family, that Chairman Yi and Director Zhang are uh, excited about moving forward in this. And in that document, they referenced loaning $5 million to the BD family. Right. The BD family is the Biden family. What are the implications of this going forward? If Joe Biden is elected president, which could very well happen, how does this constrain his ability to deal with China? Are you asking for my personal I opinion? I am. I'm asking for your opinion as someone who's worked with the Chinese. So I think Joe Biden and the Biden family are compromised. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Joel Pollack, Breitbart News senior editor-at-large, author of Red November, Will the Country Vote Red for Trump or Red for Socialism? And his new book, Neither Free Nor Fair, the 2020 U.S. presidential election, that uh, was released yesterday. So hot off the presses. Joel Pollack, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. 
Thanks so much. So your reaction to that speech that was given by this Chinese academic, what it uh, seems to implicate, uh, and you know, putting it all in the context sort of the way that Tucker did nicely yesterday about uh, what transpired uh, throughout the Trump presidency and near the end of the election with the Hunter Biden revelations. Well, it confirms what we've already known, which is that the Chinese Communist Party and the Chinese industrial elite, where there's a lot of overlap, have long viewed the American business and political elite as a ripe target for influence operations and for control. And that Donald Trump threw a wrench into that, not only because he promised to take on China and he stood up to China on trade, on defense, on foreign policy, on many fronts, but also Donald Trump stood up to Wall Street. And what you hear from that academic is that the Chinese Communist Party had cultivated relationships with leading figures in American finance and politics, but because Trump had confronted the Wall Street powers that be and confronted the Beltway, the old levers of power that the Chinese government had used to build influence in Washington and in Wall Street weren't working anymore. And and so Trump was not susceptible to the control of the Chinese government, and it was uh, greatly frustrating to them was one of the reasons they felt they were constantly on the back foot, losing in the trade war, losing in geopolitical disputes, unable to stop Trump from making advances for American industry, for American foreign policy. Now they feel a sense of relief because Joe Biden has largely brought back all the old retreads from the Obama administration. A lot of the civil servants, the deep staters that China already knows and has cultivated relationships with. And of course, he's bringing back Wall Street. Wall Street backed Joe Biden heavily. Wall Street wants to do more business with China. They want to get rid of the tariffs. They want to surrender in the trade war. They want to allow China to expand its influence because they think it's good for their bottom line. Well, the other thing, and this was not mentioned by Tucker, uh, it's sort of implicated when he talked about that Harvard physicist that was arrested, but uh, the Confucius Institutes that China was setting up and funding to funnel money into universities and uh, that whole aspect of their spycraft as well that was starting to be interdicted by the Trump administration. Yeah, it's really concerning that the Biden administration seems to be throwing away a lot of what worked under the Trump administration, that they are determined, for example, to go back to the Iran deal, even though Trump showed that the Iran deal was basically useless, that it allowed Iran to develop a nuclear weapon over time, that they were already cheating on the deal, and that Trump has given them a lot of leverage to force Iran to agree to real commitments to end nuclear program because he's got all these sanctions in place and he took out their terrorist general and he stopped them from expanding their regional influence. The Biden team just wants to throw all that away. And likewise with China, they're basically saying, hey, you know, this whole effort to confront China, we don't have to deal with that. We're going to dismantle that and go right back to the way things were. I think that they're going to see some resistance to that policy not just from within the government, which is where all the resistance to Trump came. But I think you're going to see Americans start to speak out and say, hey, this actually doesn't work. We liked not going to war in the Middle East for four years. We liked not appeasing the mullahs in Iran. We liked confronting China and standing up for American interests. So I think that the media have given Biden a pass on this so far, but as he moves closer to implementing his policies, I I think you'll start to see some pushback. Of course, the media are all on his side, but I think people are going to start speaking out and saying, hey, this actually worked under Trump. I didn't want to say it while he was still president, but we really need to look harder at this before we go back to the old status quo.
When we come back with Breitbart Editor-at-Large, Joel Pollack, I want to get his perspective on the Durham investigation and uh, its uh, scope as well as its potential to actually result in prosecutions. More with Breitbart's Joel Pollack right after this. Political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. This is The Dan Proft Show. I'm reliable, I'm a very good listener, and I'm extremely funny. On the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We're speaking with Breitbart Editor-at-Large Joel Pollack. And before the break, we were talking about what China has to gain from a Biden administration. And I want to uh, loop in the Durham investigation in that the context of that conversation. Do you hold out any hope that uh, the ongoing Durham investigation, now special counsel Durham, may be folding this into his investigation? You know, Ken Starr started out with Whitewater and wound up with Monica Lewinsky. So these things uh, can be very open-ended. And I just wonder, maybe, and maybe this is just my wistfulness, that Durham stumbled onto some of this Hunter Biden, Joe Biden stuff, in addition to looking at what uh, CIA and FBI was doing uh, with respect to those Russian collusion investigations. I think that Durham is probably going to limit the scope of his investigation. That's what Attorney General William Barr seems to be hinting, that he's found something that's important enough to keep looking at. But it looks like he is going to be focusing more narrowly on the crimes in the Russia investigation itself. Now, we don't know what connections there may be between that and the Hunter Biden problems, but Hunter Biden apparently was under investigation for money laundering. It's not hard to see why there might be room for concern. Tony Bobolinsky said $5 million that was supposed to go into a joint venture, into a private company that he was going to be the CEO of, actually went into accounts that were controlled by Hunter Biden, and he later reported that as income for consulting fees. So, you know, that's a kind of embezzlement, I guess, when you take money that's supposed to be invested and you pay yourself with that money. Uh, But maybe that was the purpose of the money all along. Maybe the Chinese energy company wanted to, in effect, provide a bribe to Hunter Biden and, and through him to his father. We're not at the bottom of this. It it may require another special counsel. But again, this was something the American people had the right to know about, and the media just just suppressed it completely. Now, I've weighed in on the uh, Texas case before the Supreme Court with respect to the election, but I'm just a Johnny Punch clock who went nights uh, at Loyola Law. Um, Your uh, assessment of the prospect that that Texas case would, uh, would be successful well, I was talking to my wife about this last night. We went on a on an evening walk, and, and she said, well, what do you think of this case? I said, I think they're likely to take it up. I, I think Texas is probably going to lose the case. So I, th- I think they will take it up. I don't think it's going to be successful, at least not entirely. They're, they're looking to compel four state legislatures to take up the task of appointing the electors to the Electoral College, saying that these four states, Wisconsin, Michigan, Georgia, and Pennsylvania, have violated their own laws in redesigning their election outside of the state legislatures, going through state courts or or state officials. And I think that, you know, there's some merit to the arguments, but I'm not sure that they're actually going to convince the court that all four states did this. And I think possibly their strongest case is in Georgia, because there there was this consent decree where they 
had a bill, a compromise bill between Republicans and Democrats that passed in 2019 where they expanded vote by mail and they lowered some of the safeguards. And then in 2020, they, they had this additional effort spearheaded by Democrat interest groups where they basically forced the Republican officials in the state to accept this kind of court settlement to change the rules again, but they completely cut out the legislature. They completely cut the people out. So I think that's a very strong case for the court to weigh in and say, hey, look, you can't do this. I mean, you know, the state legislature acting is one thing, but you can't circumvent the state legislature. The Constitution says only the state legislatures can decide how electors are appointed. It's not so clear the other states have, have quite the same problem. There are problems with officials making departures from state law, you know, in Wisconsin deciding that you could apply for an absentee ballot without a voter ID because you were indefinitely confined, you know, where, where they really stretched the definition of indefinitely confined. But I, I think the court's basically going to say, we don't want to set a precedent where states are going to sue each other after an election to say, hey, you administered your election ineffectively or improperly or unconstitutionally, and therefore you have to take down those election results, you have to nullify them and go to the state legislature. I think the court's going to be reluctant to sort of make that a permanent feature of our elections. So they may reverse one or two of these state results, but I don't think they're going to give Texas the full four-state relief that they're seeking. Even if they did, it would just go back to the state legislatures, and they could very well just appoint Biden electors anyway. Um, but anyway, I think it's an important challenge. It's an important principle. We don't want these Democrat lawyers basically going around the people's elected representatives and telling us how to run elections. And, and again, I write about that in my book. There's this fellow, Mark Elias. I don't know if you've discussed him on the show, but he was the guy who paid for Fusion GPS to build the Russia dossier against President Trump. So he was one of the guys behind the Russia hoax. And then he came back again in 2020, and he started suing all of these battleground states to get them to change their voting rules. I mean, this guy is is really something else. He's almost, you know, kind of a cartoon villain. But the same guy who tried to basically steal the 2016 election with this fraudulent Russia hoax came back to try to change the rules so that so that Democrats would have a much easier time winning in 2020. He is Joel Pollack, Breitbart News Senior Editor-at-Large and author of the new book, Neither Free Nor Fair, the 2020 U.S. Presidential Election. Pick that up, Joel. Thanks, as always, for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. We're turning our attention to uh, lockdown and bus policies and this uh, L.A. County injunction that was granted by a judge out uh, Left Coast Way with respect to the prohibition on outdoor dining in L.A., uh, something that uh, John Tierney, our friend, former New York Times columnist, wrote in City Journal recently. Whatever the lockdowns and mandates do or don't accomplish in stopping viral spread, they definitely enable officials and citizens to demonstrate that they're taking bold actions against COVID. And the more painful the measures, the more virtuous and heroic they feel. Whenever evidence emerges that the lockdowns are ineffective, the proponents have a ready answer. Not enough people are following the rules. Stop sinning. Do your penance. Yes, pandemic penance. As uh, tyranny writes, indeed they are. This is uh, a COVID enthusiast. Pandemic dependence is even better. Walter Williams in a posthumous piece reminds us of an observation that uh, the great H.L. Mencken provided about politics. 
The whole aim of practical politics is to keep the populace alarmed and hence clamorous to be led to safety by menacing it with an endless series of hobgoblins, all of them imaginary. Now, COVID-19 is not imaginary, but the policy responses in 2020 uh, have many of them have imaginary bases. They are unsupported by evidence. There is no risk uh, cost benefit analysis, risk assessment made of doing one versus doing the other, no opportunity cost considered, because as tyranny writes, if uh, things worsen, it's because you're not doing what I said you should do. And so it's worth considering those observations in the context of this decision by a judge in L.A. County, Judge James Chalfont, saying that the county acted arbitrarily, quote unquote, and failed to perform the required risk benefit analysis, unquote, quote unquote. Well, right. I mean, you could take those two phrases and apply them to most of the lockdown policies in the country. You know, as we stand here, rinsing and repeating the same policies to address the sort of the same exigency spiraling cases and associated hospitalizations, although the mortality rate has declined substantially from the spring to the winter, as we've discussed previously. But here's the thing. So why? Why are they doing this? Why wouldn't they do the cost-benefit analysis to make sure they're being as precise as is humanly possible, taking the path that is most effective, given a bunch of imperfect options, least onerous to their constituents? Why? Well, think about uh, incentives. If you believe, you start, you know, always get back to premises. If you start, uh, premises. If you believe that people respond to incentives, which I do because they do, that's the nature of man, what are the incentives being presented to politicians, whether it's the set in, in L.A. and California or Illinois or New York or Michigan, New Jersey? The incentive is what? To feast on the fear that they've created because what is the political cost that is being borne otherwise is there a political cost being borne by mayors like warren wilhelm jr in new york city governors like andrew cuomo lightfoot and pritzker garcetti and newsom phil murphy in in new jersey jay Inslee in washington state I mean, is there a price being paid? So if there's not a price being paid, why would they stop doing what they've been doing? Because remember, their calculus is not your business's bottom line, your family's income, even their own budget. Their concern is their political future. How does this impact my ability to continue in this uh, sinecure that I've obtained for myself? And so if there's not a political cost then why would they change course? And this is where pressure is required. And so will the pressure be brought to bear? It's, it's, there's, there's some indication it will be. And there are more people speaking out that uh, are not necessarily Trump people, not necessarily conservatives. I listen to uh, one celebrity chef out L.A. way. He owns a couple of dozen restaurants. I don't know who this guy is. I'm not a foodie. I don't watch the Food Network, but I think a lot of people do know him. Andrew Gruel, who uh, took to uh, social media, to issue uh, this message. What was the fine for Gavin Newsom when he was out dining with 22 of his friends? What was the fine for uh, the L.A. County Board of Supervisors, uh, Sheila Kuhn, who went out and ate immediately after she shut everything down? I mean, you know, there's countless examples of all of these officials going out and breaking their own rules. So, you know, I'll double down on those. I'll match those fines when they match the fines. 
Right. He's uh, staying open. So Molan Labe, says uh, celebrity chef Andrew Gruel. In Chicago, another example, the, what are the consequences? What is the price that they're paying? Teachers unions. <laughs> this is a, a remarkable development. The Chicago Teachers Union does not want to send the teachers back to school, despite the scientific consensus. And uh, this is really innovative. The Chicago Teachers Union is now saying they may strike if CPS continues to insist, the Chicago Public School System continues to insist that teachers return. They may strike. They're talking about striking virtually while schools are shut down. I mean, it's one thing to strike and not appear in the classroom. It's another thing when you're already not in the classroom and you're going to strike anyway. It's real innovation, isn't it? You know, they, they are endlessly creative in, in uh, manufacturing conditions for their work. But if there is no price to be paid politically for the teachers' unions that are in charge of these schools, it's the Chicago's teachers' union schools. It's not the Chicago public schools. It's not the L.A. Unified School. It's the L.A. teachers' union schools. It's the Chicago public school – excuse me, Chicago teachers' union schools. That's what we've come to find out for those of you who didn't otherwise realize this going into the pandemic. But I think you, you focus on – we focus on the price that people are being – a price that people are uh, paying, you know, regular, regular working people. We went through this yesterday. The the great uh, taxonomy of job classifications in uh, COVID twenty twenty in America. There's three: the non-essential workers. These are private sector workers who are not allowed to work per the government. The essential workers. These are private sector workers who get paid to work, authorized by the government, okayed by the government. And so unpaid by decree of government, paid so long as you work by decree of government. And then the super essential workers like Chicago teachers and other public sector employees who set the conditions of work or not work and they get paid regardless until you change the incentive structure presented to these political operators, whether they're individual politicians or, uh, you know, union mob organizations. Why would you expect them to change their behavior? This is Dan Proud. Listen to podcast of the show at danproffshow.com. Welcome back to the show. I wanted to make uh, one more note uh, to build on a conversation earlier in the hour uh, that included uh, our discussion with Joel Pollack about uh, the election challenges of the uh, Trump legal team and allied forces, if you will. Uh, and this uh, also folds in Supreme Court's decision to not grant cert to the case that was brought by Pennsylvania Congressman Mike Kelly, uh, Manu Raju, a CNN flack. There was no noted dissent, and it marks the first vote of Justice Amy Coney Barrett in an election-related dispute, as if this is a you know, major event. The uh, Pennsylvania case, not getting cert. Tiana Lowe is a writer for Washington Examiner, contributor, former, formerly at NRO and so forth. So she's, you know, I guess, center-right, I presume. I think we've spoken to her on this show before. But she tweeted out this, and I wanted to address it because it's coming from somebody of the center-right perspective. 
And, uh, you know, it's important to hash these things out. At this point, she tweeted, at this point, to believe this election was stolen, you have to buy that Doug Ducey, Brian Kemp, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, Alito, Amy Coney Barrett, Clarence Thomas, multiple Trump-appointed federal judges, and multiple state Republicans are all in on the scheme. That is total nonsense. You don't have to believe any of those things, in fact. There is a difference between believing that fraud was afoot and understanding that that's not the end of the discussion, that's the beginning of it. So, no, you don't have to believe that uh, those governors or those Supreme Court justices or other federal judges were in on anything. You can believe there was fraud afoot because the circumstantial case is fairly persuasive because the statistical anomalies and the number of them, a statistical anomaly on top of a statistical anomaly, are so many that uh, fraud was afoot. But also recognize that that doesn't mean that you still don't have to clear the threshold for remedial action in courts of law or with state legislatures to use their power as their empower as their uh, as is provided by uh, constitutional provision or or federal or state statute. You see what I'm saying? So it's just a dismissive attitude to say, "Oh, if you believe that fraud occurred." That you're, you're part, you think that some global conspiracy that involves uh, you know, all the conservative Supreme Court justices, too. No, you don't. Because I believe fraud was afoot, and I don't believe that the governors or the Supreme Court justices or federal judges were in on anything. I believe that the Trump campaign legal team couldn't put together the requisite evidence wasn't focused enough. I mean, you've heard my criticisms if you listen to the show. wasn't focused enough in terms of rank order prioritizing the strength of the claims that they were going to make as opposed to taking the spaghetti against a wall approach, which they took. They failed to mount the kind of legal challenge that was persuasive in courts of law, that was persuasive to state legislatures. So you can believe that and understand that to be the case. Uh, And you don't have to be and shouldn't be accused of being some black helicopter conspiracy theorist. And frankly, it's that kind of haughty attitude that gave rise to Trump in the first place. This is Dan Prof. This is the Dan Prof Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Again, you can uh, follow the program at danprofshow.com. Follow us on social media at danproft and at danprofshow, including Parler. Elon Musk featured at the Wall Street Journal's CEO Council Confab, and uh, he had uh, this to say uh, as to the question of whether or not America is still this uh, wondrous land for entrepreneurship that it was when he came here as a young man to find his fortune. Yeah, well, I think. Um, U.S. is still great with respect to uh, innovation and fostering entrepreneurship. Um, still, still great. I think we don't want to be complacent, and we want to uh, say, okay, how can we make it better over time? And I think we, we want to be um, cautious about the, the gradual creep of regulations and, and bureaucracy. 
the rules and regulations uh, are immortal. Um, and if we keep making more of a year and do not uh, do something about uh, removing them, then eventually we will be able to do nothing. This is very important and I think not well appreciated. This is just sort of like the, 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 the slow boil of the frog. You know, his frog doesn't jump out because it gets just slightly hotter each year. Um, we should be aware of this, I think, particularly at the state level. Particularly at the state level, as somebody who is uh, absconded from California for Texas, uh, Musk also asked uh, the role of government when it comes to the market economy. I mean, a lot of the time, the best thing that government can do is just get out of the way. Um, and so the, I'd say that's the, that's the default, um, probably the best thing to do. Then um, after that would be ensuring that uh, there are not artificial monopolies, uh, that, that um, uh, there is a fertile ground for startups. Um, and because the, 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 what can happen over time is they can get regulatory capture by large companies uh, where they influence the, the regulators and the legislators uh, to favor uh, their, their, their situation. And then you have a forest of redwoods and you just can't, the, the, the little uh, little trees can't grow. For reaction to that and some discussion of COVIDnomics, we're pleased to be joined again by our friend Steve Moore, Wall Street Journal columnist and Trumponomics author. Steve, uh, you know, uh, it, Elon Musk says some wonderful things when it comes to uh, promoting free markets and entrepreneurship. I wish he lived them a little bit more consistently uh, with respect to his rhetoric uh, since he is – one of our um, leading subsidy benefit, uh, one of the leading subsidy benefiters in, in the in, in the in the country. But uh, but uh, reaction to what Elon Musk is saying and what he's doing, at least with respect to locating his enterprises. I think he's an incredible visionary. I think uh, I was saying right when we got cut off that you know he is the ultimate example of an immigrant success story. Uh, how is it, by the way? I mean, something for people to think about. How is it that someone can come into this country with almost nothing like an Elon Musk or, you know, so many of these incredible entrepreneurs and they build up these, you know, $100 billion plus businesses? This is, this is the ultimate land of opportunity. And, and uh, I think he's a, he's a reminder of that. Um, a reminder of where we are in this uh, land of opportunity, at least uh, sans government. This was interesting, just looking exactly. at uh, – just looking at looking at Florida, since Florida is one of the more aggressive states to open some stats, just in terms of how devastating the lockdowns have been and how even a state that is largely open is still trying to recover. Looking at the tourism numbers in Florida, uh, hotel occupancy is down 29 percent, 29 percent in October year over year. Uh, but they're significantly better in October compared to the 71 percent drop year over year in April. Uh, they look at average hotel rentals, uh-huh. 60 days yeah. out. The average hotel vacation rental bed and breakfast bookings down 53% in October compared to 60% in June. So still down significantly year over year, particularly as you're moving to in-season in yeah. Florida. And yeah. I, I, I just use those as sort of data points to say yeah. even when the economy is open in a state like Florida, because it's not open elsewhere, it's a drag, and you have states that are open doing a little bit better than states that are not, but they're not killing it. Well, they're not, but they are doing a lot better. I mean, look, let, let's be very clear about this. You know, the, the dystopia right now in America is, is the blue states. It, 
it is Illinois, it is California, it is New York, it is New Jersey, it is Connecticut, uh, that have completely shuttered their businesses. I was in California a couple weeks ago, and, and they're not even allowing outdoor dining, outdoor dining, which is, I mean, everyone agrees that that's a safe thing to do. Less, I mean, it, it's a heartbreaking story because uh, we have an item in our, in our hotline this morning that uh, uh, the National Restaurant Association did a poll of their members. 50%, uh, a little under 50% of, of restaurants in America are facing bankruptcy right now. You know, 50%. And I'm sorry, you know, sending more checks to these businesses is not the solution. I'm against no. bailouts and so on. Let, let, gosh darn it, it makes me so angry. We, this has been almost a year now with this pandemic. Americans can make their own decisions. We don't need. Uh, Lightfoot and Pritzker and, and Cuomo and these governors and, and health officials, sometimes they're unelected health officials that are telling us what we can and can't do. And I'm sick of it, frankly. I think the American people are sick of it. Um, we, uh, look, I try to act safely. I try to act smartly. I don't, oftentimes I don't, I'm very reluctant to go to an indoor, indoor restaurant, but you can't even eat outside. Uh, I wanted to get to your handle and where things stand. Right. Can I just say one thing about, you know, I want to make one other point about Elon Musk. You know, you're right. When he first got started in business, almost all of his businesses were, you know, basically with government grants and handouts. Right. I mean, he kind of gamed the system. But now he's got these companies that are up and running. They're, they, you know, Tesla looks like it's going to be incredibly successful. I don't even know if Tesla's ever even made a profit yet, but it has a $600 billion, um, you know, market cap. But the point is, I do think he's evolved in his thinking. He is now seeing the flip side of government handouts, which is that government strangles you with regulations. And that's why he's moved, you know, out of California. And, and so I think there's been an evolution yeah. in his thinking away from the very – progressivism that he once embraced oh yeah i think that's right i just uh, i hope that that continues to evolve where he makes uh, pronouncements about rent seeking and uh, opposition to rent seeking right. even if it's a bit hypocritical coming from him he's still an important <laughs> right. voice exactly. um, yeah. I, I, your, your take on where things stand i know you're an uh, opponent of it as am i but uh, president trump is not and it seems like both caucuses, Republicans and Democrats on the Hill or not, the, the latest and the greatest on a, another potential round of COVID, quote-unquote, relief. Well, the big story of the American economy, it's a real tribute, I think, to Trump and to just free enterprise that somehow our economy continues to do very well. I mean, we don't, we don't need a trillion-dollar stimulus bill. We just don't. We have, you know what the pace of the economy for this quarter is, according to the Federal Reserve Bank right now? After the 33% growth we had in the third quarter, you know what, what we're on target for in the fourth quarter? 10%, usually 3 or 4% is a good number. This economy is, I don't know how they're doing it, but businesses are figuring out how to survive in this hostile environment. Another trillion-dollar government spending bill is not going to solve the problem. Am I, do I want $600 a week unemployment benefits? On top of, no. Do I think we should bail out blue states with a quarter trillion dollars of spending? No. Do I think we should have the federal government send checks to $1,200? I think now they're saying $600 to everybody. No. I mean, you just can't resurrect an economy by printing money. What is so hard for people to figure out about that? Do you think your friend Larry Kudlow is going to win the day on the argument you just made? <laughs> My answer is also no. 
<laughs> you may be right. I mean, you, you know, I think you may be right. I, I, I will be very disappointed. And I love Donald Trump. I work for him. I mean, he has a lot of flaws. But, you know, he's done an amazing job of, of you know, this is a super V-shaped recovery. We're growing faster than any other country in the world right now. Uh, and, and the fact is that um, I don't want Trump going out of office with his last, uh, you know, major piece of legislation, another trillion dollar bailout bill. I mean, I just think it'll stain his legacy and it's not the right thing to do. If, if we're going to do this, by the way, one other thing, at least give the money to the people, not to the politicians. Don't give it to the mayors. Don't give it to the governors. At least give it to the individuals and the businesses, uh, not the uh, not the people who, who ruin the economy in the first place, which is these mayors. And, and governors. But I pray that he doesn't do this. We don't need it. We $30 trillion of debt. $30 trillion, folks. They're spending this money in Washington like it's, like it's M&M money. When I first came to Washington, a billion dollars was a lot of money. Now oh, we're yeah. talking in a trillion. Back in the day. And I'm Steve, not that old. I'm Steve, <laughs> Wall Street Journal columnist, economist, Trumponomics <laughs> author, Steve Moore. Thanks for joining us. Take care. <laughs> Sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. Uh, moving from our conversation with uh, the Wall Street Journal, Steve Moore, arguing against uh, Trump's potential last act being signing another uh, COVID relief bill arguing against that with Steve Moore, and I tend to agree with him. It uh, speaks to uh, a time to start taking some stock of the last four years in terms of the policy successes, uh, what was attempted and where success was realized and what was attempted and where not as much success as was as was realized. And, you know, this starts from the premise that a number of commentators, myself included, but Rusty Reno, not necessarily always Trump cheerleaders, Suggests that, you know, president, his faults notwithstanding, his uh, the disagreements some conservatives have with some of the policy choices he chose, he, he chose to pursue. He was a president who basically did or attempted to do virtually everything he said he would if he were elected. And there's something important to that culturally. For more on the topic of Trump's presidency from a policy perspective. We're pleased to be joined by Wells King, who's the research director at American Compass. Wells, thanks for being with us. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me on the show. So um, you uh, penned a piece for the American conservative called the Potpourri Presidency, and it certainly was that, um, uh, but you're focusing more on sort of where he really advanced the flag in the policy areas he sought to versus where he was less successful in doing that. And um, I think you, you hit upon one of the things that's really central to thinking about to Trump's presidency, and that is the advancing the flag rhetorically and from a policy perspective for the non-college educated uh, lower to middle income worker in America. That was clearly an administration focus. Yes. If anything, I think potentially the greatest legacy of the Trump presidency will be um, a shifting the focus 
um, not only in policy, but rhetorically to focus on the American worker, finding alternative pathways into the workforce for those without a college degree, protecting and boosting American wages, reforming the immigration system to support American workers. And I think we saw the benefits electorally of that and the exit polls from the 2020 election. I like to think that will be uh, the legacy of presidency going forward, and hopefully it'll shape the Republican agenda. Right. And this is important. Uh, this is in part why it's important to discuss now, because if uh, President Trump is no longer president, then you still have a Republican Party that's going to have to have a policy agenda and make policy arguments in, in uh, advance of the 2022 midterms and uh, the 2024 president, uh, presidential election and so forth. They still have to continue to, to uh, brand themselves and um, essentially brand themselves in such a way that they have they retain the appeal that Republicans had, the increment that they received because of Trump's sort of crossover popularity as evidenced by the 75 million votes he got this go around. Right. In the next two and four years, should we have a Biden era? The, the most, I think, important debate on the right will not necessarily be with the other side of the aisle, but among ourselves and thinking about um, what the future of the right is going to be um, and what are the policy pieces that Trump built that we're actually going to build upon. Uh, we were talking to Steve Moore about some of the comments that Elon Musk made yesterday at the uh, Wall Street Journal CEO Council. And uh, Musk focused in on, on regulation. And this is another area sort of uh, at the, about the same time that uh, the Trump tax cuts were being pursued and, and effectively achieved. Uh, a, a lot of focus on the tax cuts were great, but w- one of the things he did in the first two years was sort of uh, change the culture with respect to the regulatory creep of the federal leviathan. And that's something that Republicans need to stick to and, and, and mean it in a way perhaps they haven't always. Right. And, and, and Trump certainly meant it. Um, the uh, two for one executive order that he passed early on in the advent where he said that, um, uh, that for every regulation passed, we needed to cut two existing ones um, uh, was a clear statement that he was going to pursue an aggressive deregulatory agenda. I think it's one of the lasting achievements of the administration. Um, but he was also very innovative, I think, in passing new regs, I think particularly in healthcare and in drug pricing, um, where I think uh, the regulations he passed there, I think, uh, marked a departure from orthodoxy within the GOP, but also charted, I think, a positive direction in health policy for the right. Uh, what about on, on the cultural front? I mean, so much of 2020 has been wrapped up in uh, Black Lives Matter and uh, an executive order that uh, Trump issued um, a few weeks before the election that would prohibit what what I would argue is is racist indoctrination of federal workers, the sort of anti-racist agenda of of leftist uh, race race uh, uh, focused academics like Ibram Kendi. No, we're not going to do that. We're, we're not going to go down this path that uh, that uh, you uh, white people are bad, that it, this is a white privilege thing. This is white versus black. Uh, everybody's either in, in one of two categories, oppressor or oppressed. We're, we're not going to do that. I'm not going to support that sort of taxpayer financed instruction of the federal workforce and sort of this, the same arguments making that were made against that in, in academia as well. And I know that can be easily undone by an executive order, and I'm sure it will be by President Biden. But um, but but taking up that fight in that way is something that I think a lot of Republicans have been leery to do because, of course, they're afraid of being called a racist. Trump wasn't, uh, despite the fact that uh, he continues to be to this day, while also, and maybe this is instructive for Republicans, 
you know, increasing his increment, uh, incremental, increasing by an increment his share of the black and Latino votes in 2020, despite four years of saying he was a white supremacist by the assembled D.C. press corps. Yeah, the, um, you know, what I think a lot of voters um, liked about Trump, and I think particularly um, uh, black and Latino voters who um, uh, flipped from Clinton to Trump, um, was the fact that he was unapologetically pro-American. Um, and uh, I think framed the, um, the MAGA message as a unifying one, um, that we are united around the flag and as a country. Um, and the executive orders um, addressing critical race theory, um, you know, within the government and within the agencies um, was, I think, a smart one. Uh, I think it was exactly the right type of message, the right need to send. Um, I am, I'm, I'm curious to see what a Biden administration does with that. I, I, I happen to agree with you. They probably will overturn that. Um, but I think that, that, that it also creates a lane, I think, for those of us on the right to offer a unifying counter narrative to what I think is a largely divisive one that the left is offering. And the other thing he did, too, just on the, the front of, of racial politics, since uh, obviously the left is identitarian obsessed, uh, is take opportunities to do things that were asymmetrical. That, uh, that 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 destroy the caricature of the right by the left, like the uh, First Step Act, you know, criminal justice reform. Yep. Take take opportunities like that to build non traditional coalitions. Right, right. The 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 First Step Act was, I think, uh, a policy that perhaps only President Donald Trump could have pursued um, as a Republican. Um, I, I can't think of many others that were on the stage in 2016 who would have pursued the same policy there and been able to build that kind of bipartisan support. Um, I think elsewhere where you see this type of transformational agenda was in trade, um, where, where President Trump really did um, go, I think, directly against the orthodoxies um, within Washington, D.C., and fundamentally, almost single-handedly changed the way we talk about our relationship with China um, and the industrial base in this in, 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 in the United States, um, in particular, um, um, in the Rust Belt. He is Wells King. He's the research director at American Compass. Uh, I will retweet his piece uh, at theamericanconservative.com, the potpourri presidency. Check it out. Wells, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show and uh, The Great Reset. We discussed that a little bit on yesterday's program with Conrad Black, who uh, is a uh, you know, knows Klaus Schwab. We talked about it a bit. Klaus Schwab uh, is a you know, globalist, chief proponent of the Great Reset, uh, World Economic Forum that meets annually in Davos. That's uh, his deal. Uh, Conrad Black doesn't think much of his intellectual chops, but he concedes that Schwab has been able to sort of flim-flam his way into influence. The Great Reset, as um, a term coined in a 2011 book by uh, by economist Richard Florida, uh, 
and adopted by Schwab in, in the context of the UN's agenda. Uh, it proposes to determine the future state of global relations, the direction of national economies, the priorities of societies, the nature of business models, the management of the global commons. As we played yesterday, uh, sort of Gavin Newsom uh, recounting this in a domestic context back in April, talking about how the pandemic provides the opportunity to transform, and he used that word, the way we think about all of these topic areas, how a free society is organized, how uh, uh, goods and services are provided, how wealth is distributed. This is the opportunity. Now, I'm not sure, even if uh, Joe Biden appoints folks that are similarly disposed to Klaus Schwab, (laughs) I'm not sure that he's going to be the one pulling the trigger if his rollout of his uh, health policy team yesterday is any indication. This is Joe Biden introducing his his choice for Health and Human Services Secretary, California Attorney General. Well, you listen. And I'm grateful to the members of my COVID team that I'd like to introduce to you now who will lead the way i'm really proud of this group for secretary of health and education service i nominated javier bacaria you know javier bashira excuse me he currently the attorney general of california leading the second largest justice department in america he sounds surprised to learn that he was the attorney general of california javier becerra right yeah for more on uh, The Great Reset, we're pleased to be joined by Chad Pecknold. He's Associate Professor of Systematic Theology at the Catholic University of America and a columnist for First Things. He's written about this Great Reset as well. Chad, thanks for joining us. Professor Pecknold, yep. thanks for joining yeah, us. Yeah, my today. pleasure to be with you. Um, so uh, talk, one of the things that you mentioned in your piece in, in First Things about this Great Reset that I was describing and those who are behind it is that uh, these resets – uh, always yeah. have a, re- a religious component, and uh, and so does the one that's being proposed by the Klaus Schwabs of the world. Well, it's it's interesting because it's kind of you know what sociologists of religion call a functional religious aspects when you when you try to uh, make a pitch where you're really wanting to to uh, re envision the whole economic and social systems for the world, what you're really talking about is something powerfully um, universal, something which is powerfully rethinking how we connect to each other. And that has this aspect of functional religiosity. Normally we think like, you know, a belief in God is something that has a hold on 7 billion people or something. But um, here we have this great reset idea and sociologists of religion also have this, uh, this uh, knowledge uh, uh, in history of clean slate decrees that that went throughout the ancient cultures in which repeatedly, famously in Israel, the Jubilee years, every 49 years, there would be this kind of great reset of land and capital. But it always had a religious sensibility that what would authorize a great reset you know, would it be a democratic political action or would it be like something religious, like an act of God saying, let's reorder everything. And I think this has that religious dimension of this being kind of an act of the Davos man, um, you know, dictating what the whole, how the whole world should be reshaped and reformed in the image of the Davos man. I think it's, it's worrying. 
Uh, when we uh, come back, um, I'm going to talk a little bit more about the image of the Davos man, the exact implications of that, as well as uh, cover some of what uh, John Kerry has said mm-hmm. about the Great Reset, said recently at the last uh, meeting of the Davos men and women. Uh, when we come back with uh, Professor Chad Pecknold, Associate Professor of Systematic Theology at the Catholic University of America and a columnist for FirstThings.com. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the program, and as we were discussing before the break of the Great Reset, this is not some sort of shadowy conspiracy theory. This is what internationalists, globalists, are arguing for. John Kerry, at a World Economic Forum panel discussion in mid-November, said uh, that uh, the Great Reset, quote, will happen with greater speed and with greater intensity than a lot of people might imagine. The Great Reset will happen. In effect, the citizens of the United States have just done a Great Reset. We've done a Great Reset, and it was a record level of voting. He said the Great Reset is necessary to slow the climate crisis. Of course, remember, he's the climate czar. I know Joe Biden believes it's not enough just to rejoin the Paris Climate Accords for the United States. It's not enough for just to do the minimum of what Paris requires. We're at a, the dawn of an ex- extremely exciting time, he continued. The greatest opportunity we have to address social and economic problems is dealing with the climate crisis. So it seems like central to the Great Reset is international policy with respect to climate change. Continuing our discussion, we're rejoined by Chad Pecknold, Associate Professor of Systematic Theology at the Catholic University of America and columnist for First Things. Professor Pecknold, before the break, we're talking a little bit about the, sort of the religious component, you know, the feel of these uh, initiatives, even though they're mm-hmm. secular in nature. And it seems to me mm-hmm. this is the church of uh, the Green New Deal, the church of climate change here is, is oh, really the, the sacrament. You know, you mentioned earlier about, you know, what is this going to be the Biden administration's policy? Well, it, it looks a lot like uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's Green New Deal, a kind of global reset for a new green economy in which you reorder all the aspects of government for this vague and endless ideal of protecting the planet. What is the status of protecting the planet? And how do you know when you've done it? It's this almost pseudo-religious ideal that has all of these policy grabs on it. Digital health passports for Schwab, you know, crisis-relevant that we're going to reorder our lives so that we can deal with the digital trust problem. It really starts to sound like euphemisms of control to attract elites to this cause. And look at the corporations and heads of state. You mentioned Gavin Newsom, even governors who are lining up behind the Great Reset. Why? It's because this enables them to expand the power of capital through these new pseudo-religious um, progressive aims like protecting the planet. It's got this vague sense, a vague rationale for how we can grab more control, more power against the populace who's not making any of these decisions. These are unelected figures in Davos who are 
dictating how we should reorder all of our lives. And I think I think people should be worried about unelected officials determining how their lives should be structured. It's almost as if we have a kind of new world government that everybody's cooperating in, and we should speak up about it. Well, and I like the suggestion you make, too, that uh, w- the focus should be thinking about who benefits economically from the pursuit of the Great Reset, uh, whether it is you know formal cash in pocket or it's wielding economic power. Right. I think it's really striking that you think, well, if this is really altruistic, if this is, if this is really kind of the social conscience of businesses, why would they be so invested? I mean, they're invested, I think, because they see how much richer is Jeff Bezos now because of how we've restructured everything with the lockdown. It's very difficult for capital to resist the temptation to say, let's go all the way and restructure society so that we can expand capital in the following ways. It's a, a land grab, as they say. Listen, uh, you know, listening to or reading the pronouncements from people like Klaus Schwab and John Kerry and others, you get the feeling that you're figurines in a Tennessee Williams play, that, that they look at human beings as a menagerie. I mean, it's, Yeah, it's, I think it's even worse than that, though. I think it's that they look at human beings as the problem. Yes. Human beings are, 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 are the problem, and somehow you... The problem is solved if you keep them at home on screens all the time. The problem is solved if you just bring the goods to them and have them be constant consumers with the with the Amazon trucks coming to the home. People are liabilities. They're liabilities that have to be sort of managed and looked after rather than, you know, even to be, it's put in economic terms, assets to be developed. Exactly. They're assets to be developed. They're numbers. They're zeros and ones in a calculation for how you maximize profit. And the dark thing, the pseudo-religious thing about it is that you put it all in altruistic terms. This is all for your benefit. Before we let you go, I I did want to get your reaction to something that uh, Ralph Warnock, uh, uh, Raphael Warnock, who's one of the Democrat Senate nominees in Georgia, said from the pulpit, as well as something he tweeted, since you are a theology professor at Catholic University. um, He tweeted that he is a pro-choice pastor which was an interesting thing to tweet. And he he said this from the pulpit. I love this pope. He said, well, I'm not a Marxist, but I know a few Marxists, and they're pretty good people. So hard to discover and to hear an authentic vision and voice of authentic spirituality that gives voice to the least of these, that when it shows up, people describe it as some strange ideology rather than the vision of that poor Palestinian prophet who said that the spirit of the Lord is upon me because God has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. Uh, the uh, Palestinian prophet he's referring to, I, I guess, is Jesus Christ. Well, I'm not sure. And is he is he referring to him in the womb of Mary? As we sit in Advent here and Christians around the world get prepare for the birth of the God-man Jesus Christ, is the God-man Jesus Christ, would he have chosen life or death mm. for that child in the womb of Mary? I mean, that would be my question to my theological question to Pastor Warnock is where does he draw the line with his choices uh, if he's if he's a Christian and is pro-choice? It's, it's disappointing. A, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt, but but it's sort of it's sort of a fascinating candidacy because uh, he's wearing his. Uh, uh, his, his uh, faith uh, on his sleeve. I mean, he's Pastor yeah. Raphael Warnock on his yard signs. I mean, if this was a conservative Catholic or a conservative Christian, evangelical Christian doing this, um, this would be, you would be hearing all sorts of specious uh, separation of church and state arguments. Completely. And, 
you know, I, I think I think it's this there's this um, progressive ethos where progressivism is in some ways is like a Christian heresy. It 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 is spun off of of Christian claims a little bit, but it's this new claim that it's not Christian to be Christian, um, that it's unchristian to be Christian, and actually the most Christian thing is the progressive Marxist thing. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And so it's like a, it's like a, a shell game where you're 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 being sold a bill of goods. And I think um, I think people know that. I hope people know that in Georgia that um, they're being sold a bill of goods there with Warnock. He is Chad Pecknold, associate professor of systematic theology at the Catholic University of America, and columnist for First Things. Professor Pecknold, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Great, great to be with you. Take care. danproftshow.com Welcome back to the show, updating our Bad Santa story from yesterday. Uh, you remember, you've no doubt heard about it, it's gone viral, that uh, the Santa, of course, it's in my hometown of Chicago, Chicago land, just outside Chicago. The Santa that uh, chose the occasion of uh, being a storefront Santa to try and uh, recreate a Christmas story and tell Ralphie that he couldn't have a gun. What do you want for Christmas? Nerf gun, and uh, so that led the young boy, his name is Michael, to cry, and his mom to console him. And uh, then this happened, though, to prove there's still some sanity in the world. There's still some magic at Christmas time. Uh, the real Santa, wink, wink, showed up at his home. So there was a mistake made yesterday, huh? Yeah. Well, we're so sorry about that. Okay. Can Santa come in? Yeah, well, I heard about this up at the North Pole. Yeah, me too. And I rushed down to help. Well, this is crazy. You're missing for And so the real Santa got him a real Air 15. No, I'm kidding. He got him the Nerf gun. And by the way, that's a cool-looking Nerf gun. It's nothing like the Nerf guns that we got as kids. I'll tell you that. And also, apparently, the report is that uh, the Santa in that store at that shopping plaza has been relieved of his duties. And um, we uh, did some digging on him, and we found that that wasn't his first offense against America. I want a racing car set. Oh, a racing car set! <laughs> Listen, you don't want that. Those are assembled in Taiwan by kids like you. 
And these Coleman pigs, they sell it for triple the cost. But I want a racing car set. Oh, don't you see, kid? You're being bamboozled. These capitalist fat cats are inflating the profit margin and reducing your total number of toys. Hey, this guy's a commie! Hey, keep quiet! Where'd a nice little boy like you learn such a bad word like that, huh? Commie, commie, traitor to our country! Yeah, there you go. And then the laugh track accompanied that. It was nice. So if uh, you run into this uh, commie Santa Claus who's opposed to Nerf guns and, and uh, capitalism, you know, please react like uh, that young man did. This is Dan. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. I want to uh, revisit something we talked about a little bit earlier in the program with Joel Pollack, who's a Harvard-educated lawyer, senior editor at Breitbart. And this was uh, with respect to a video that was uh, circulating yesterday, a speech given by a vice dean at the School of International Relations at Renmin University in China. Uh, The gentleman, I believe, an economist by training, had some interesting things to say about uh, American politics, among other things. And this was uh, subtitled. It was uh, otherwise in Mandarin. So I'll just read what he said verbatim. We know that the Trump administration is in a trade war with us, so why can't we fix the Trump administration? Why did China and the U.S. used to be able to settle all kinds of issues between 92 and 2016, he asked. Uh, he, he asked, and quoting from the transcript, uh, he continued, I'm going to throw out something maybe a little bit explosive here. It's just because we have people at the top. We have our old friends who are at the top of America's core inner circle of power and influence. And he continued talking about Wall Street. During the U.S.-China trade war, Wall Street tried to help. And I know that my friends on the U.S. side told me that they tried to help, but they couldn't do much. But now we're seeing Biden was elected, the traditional elite, the political elite, the establishment. They're very close to Wall Street. So you see that, right? And there was a bit of laughter and then applause at that observation. You know, our people are back in charge is essentially what he's saying. So now we have a user-friendly administration. Uh, Tucker Carlson tackled this last night in his program, and he uh, pulled forward a clip from his interview with Tony Bobolinsky. Remember him? Former uh, Hunter Biden business partner and a deal with a communist, Chinese communist-backed energy concern. Remember what Bobolinsky said just before the election? That was uh, otherwise ignored by the D.C. press corps for obvious reasons. And in a document that you guys have and uh, I think has been provided to, you know, to the world, the Chinese referenced that because of their trust in uh, the Biden family, that Chairman Yi and Director Zhang are uh, excited about moving forward in this. And in that document, they referenced loaning $5 million to the BD family. Right. The BD family is the Biden family. What are the implications of this going forward? If Joe Biden is elected president, which could very well happen, how does this constrain his ability to deal with China? Are you asking for my personal opinion? I am. I'm asking for your opinion as someone who's worked with the Chinese. So I think Joe Biden and the Biden family are compromised. 
For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Professor John Yu. He's the Emanuel S. Heller Professor of Law at the University of California, Berkeley, author of Defender-in-Chief, Donald Trump's Fight for Presidential Power. Professor Yu, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thanks, Dan. Great to be with you. Well, I I received that uh, speech that was given by that Chinese academic in the context of a piece that uh, you wrote about uh, uh, Attorney General Barr's designation of uh, Durham as a special counsel, making it more difficult for him to be dislodged in a Biden presidency before his work is complete. And I wonder if uh, this whole matter is the occasion for uh, Durham's uh, expanding Durham's purview or another special counsel, particularly since, uh, as you note in your piece at Fox News, that uh, the uh, support for our special counsels of this sort comes from uh, an interesting source historically. Mm. <laughs> yes, exactly. The uh, support for special counsels came from one Senator Joe Biden back in the late 80s when he was defending the use of them to investigate the Reagan and Bush administrations. And it's exactly as you say, Dan, the kind of facts that you've just laid out would have been considered a uh, normal ground for appointing a special counsel. Here you have allegations of fraud against a member of the president's family, uh, allegations of uh, you know, concealing money, of potential influence buying from foreign governments like the uh, Chinese, who are our primary competitor and rival in the world right now and for the foreseeable future. And Senator Biden said back then, you know, these are the kind of situations that create potential conflicts of interest. How can we expect uh, a Justice Department headed by attorney general picked by that president to investigate that president? In fact, Biden wanted independent counsels to be more independent and more uh, immune from attorney general presidential control than even the Mueller or Durham probes are. Yeah, uh, but perhaps this is something, I mean, um, we should note uh, that it's not incumbent upon uh, necessarily upon uh, uh, a Biden administration. You have uh, President Trump that's in office for a minimum till January 20th. And is there any reason that uh, A.G. Barr shouldn't be asked about uh, about uh, authorizing the special counsel to investigate, uh, you know, Biden family connections to Chinese business interests and how that uh, perhaps could compromise the incoming administration. It, you know, you would have uh, just as much or better grounds, I'd say better grounds than what the uh, FBI had in its hands when it appointed, started its investigation under Jim Comey, uh, one that was called Crossfire Hurricane into uh, Donald Trump. You might remember that was just based on something called the Steele dossier, which turned out to just be uh, made up lies, apparently, by paid for by the Hillary Clinton campaign. Uh, here you have uh, witnesses, documents um, that point to uh, the Chinese and other governments trying to, I think, buy influence by funneling money through the son of the president. Uh, it, I, uh, you would think that, uh, yes, that I, I would hope that the Justice Department is already or has already started an investigation, and we just don't know about it. But like the appointment of Durham, if uh, Barr thought it was sufficient to start that investigation now, he ought to be worried what's going to happen under the next administration. And so special counsel appointment here would be appropriate. Uh, I wanted to get uh, your uh, reaction to the lawsuit that was filed by Texas that's now been docketed by the Supreme Court that uh, uh, seeks to have the electors in four states, Georgia, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Michigan, 
essentially set aside, arguing that those states didn't abide their own uh, legal requirements in the administration of their elections and violated the Constitution in the process. Number one, the likelihood of of success there, and number two, the quality of the um, of the theory behind the, uh, the the filing by the state of Texas. I, I hate to say, whether you think there was fraud or not, um, this is not the right way to go about it. And I think the zero, I think the chances are zero of the Supreme Court getting involved here. If there were, it was possible to give negative odds, I would give negative odds. But as yeah. someone who loves going to casinos, I can tell you there's no such thing as negative odds. Uh, look, you know, the problem is uh, this. The Constitution does have a system to handle fraud um, and potential abuse of voting in the presidential election. Uh, if there's potential fraud, the state legislatures are really the ones responsible for picking the electors in their own states. They could always decide to choose the electors if there was sufficient fraud in their popular election. And then ultimately, the Constitution sets out a process where the vice president opens the ballots in Washington in front of the House and Senate. And there's even a procedure there uh, to use if people think that the electoral votes were cast invalidly, which they have been from time to time in American history. But what the Constitution, I don't think, sets out is one state suing another state saying, we don't like the way you ran your elections. Uh, The Constitution really doesn't. The states can sue each other at the Supreme Court, that's for sure, but they don't have uh, a legal rule in the Constitution that would allow them to win in this case. Usually states sue each other over water rights and things like that and borders, uh, but not over things like this. Although think about what door this would open. That's why the Supreme Court would be reluctant to intervene. Think about sure that states the would start suing each other all the time. Yeah, right. <laughs> and anytime you don't like the, the yeah, anytime you have your your party's in charge of the legislature, they're not acting. You just say, well, I mean, you know, I think there's a legitimate basis. There's some arguments that are being made that, that that's legitimate. But I mean, in terms of the precedent being set, yeah, right. You're forever litigating states where you had an outcome that you didn't like and some questions about the administration of their election. And and, and also, too, it seems to me the fundamental infirmity especially from an originalist perspective, I would think the originalists would bristle on this on the court, is you you have state legislatures have this power. They're choosing not to exercise it. Now you're saying the court should substitute itself for four state legislatures and exercise power they have that they don't want to exercise? Dan, that's exactly right. If you're a believer in the separation of powers and the judiciary staying within its lane, what you don't want is the courts exactly deciding and taking that power away from the state legislatures and deciding every election, how uh, one state versus another. Essentially, you know, the Constitution decentralizes elections. It makes each it gives each state the right to decide how to hold them for good or ill. That's federalism. Uh, if federal courts got involved, essentially you would have one national federalized election after a while. And there's no, as you said, an originalist should not be in favor of that. There's no evidence that the founders wanted the courts to play anything like this role. He is John Yu, Emanuel S. Heller, professor of law at the University of California, Berkeley, author of Defender-in-Chief, Donald Trump's Fight for Presidential Power. Professor Yu, thanks as always. Appreciate it. Oh, thanks, Dan. Anytime. Take care. Sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show.
Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. South Dakota Governor Christine Nome is a denier. South Dakota is as bad as it gets anywhere in the world. That's what uh, she has been described as. That's what South Dakota has been described as. And she writes in the Wall Street Journal, does Governor Nome, despite harsh lockdowns in Illinois, coupled with a mask mandate since May 1, the state experienced a new single-day record in COVID-19 deaths on December 2nd, and its active case counts are higher on a per capita basis than South Dakota's has ever been. New Jersey, which still has had the most deaths in the country per capita, has a mask mandate in place since June, has imposed $15,000 a day fines on businesses that refuse to close. Still, over the last two weeks of November, its hospitalizations increased by 34%, a six-month high. California imposed a mask mandate in June as the same as some of the harshest lockdown orders in the country, including shutting off residents' water if they have too many visitors. Despite that, the AP recently reported COVID hospitalizations have increased nearly 90% and could triple by Christmas. South Dakota is entering 2021 in one of the strongest financial positions in the country. At 3.6%, our state has the third lowest unemployment rate in the nation. We closed out this past fiscal year with a $19 million surplus, and that's after she inherited and paid down $21 million worth of debt. She points out, in contrast, Illinois plans to borrow $2 billion from the Fed. New Jersey, which already has the highest debt per capita in the nation, is issuing another $4 billion in bonds. And New York is looking at a nearly $60 billion revenue shortfall. Each one of those states is also counting on federal bailouts to keep them afloat. That's not what South Dakota is doing. And they won't be raising taxes on residents or businesses either. We won't be looking to Congress to send us more stimulus money. For more on all this, we're pleased to be joined by our friend Libby Ebbins. She is... uh, course uh, with the post-millennial. Libby, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Sure thing. Thanks. Um, so what about that? Uh, what about, you know, Christy Nome uh, up there in Mount Rushmore land as compared to all those uh, sophisticated cosmopolitan types in big states like Illinois and California, New York, New Jersey? Yeah, I think Christy Nome really has taken a pretty interesting approach and it's one that has what her citizens want. I think that it's clear that the residents of South Dakota are not interested in being told what to do, being told how to live their lives, and certainly are not comfortable with the engine of the economy being shut down for their own protection. I live in New York and Governor Cuomo has been so sure that he is our uh, protecting father, you know, that he needs to tell us all what to do and how to behave and all of the rest of it. We, you know, there's these rules that bars and restaurants have to close by 10 p.m. in a city that, as we all know, never sleeps, right? I mean, this stuff is supposed to be open till 4 a.m. That's our that's our right as New Yorkers, you know, to be out all night if we want to. So it's, uh, I think it's pretty fascinating to see how this all breaks down. And it does speak to a big difference in the philosophy of these leaders across the country, because we have Newsom and Whitmer, Governor Inslee, Andrew Cuomo, people like this who are, they're so obsessed with trying to keep everyone safe from the coronavirus that they don't care about keeping us safe from anything else. It's as though they think we can just sip on the um, government faucet and they don't have any idea that the water is just going to run dry. Uh, Well, it's interesting because uh, L.A. County is uh, pushing back a little bit on the uh, political class there in California, uh, Mm -hmm. including a judge who uh, issued a temporary restraining order against their ban on L.A. County's ban on outdoor dining, saying, and boy, you know, knock me over with a feather here. L.A. County acted arbitrarily 
uh, said the judge in his opinion, failed to perform the required risk-benefit analysis uh, in prohibiting outdoor dining. Those seem to be phrases that could be applied to almost every government lockdown order in the country. Yeah, and I think we saw something interesting in Los Angeles over the weekend. I'm not sure if you saw the video of the uh, woman who owns a restaurant in L.A. Her outdoor dining establishment was shut down by the uh, completely arbitrary orders of her local officials, but movie studios are allowed to operate. So her outdoor dining tents were illegal, but the outdoor dining tents for craft services for the movie studio were perfectly legal to be in the parking lot right next to hers. So what is this about? I, I, I wrote a piece for the Postmillennial over the weekend just digging into what these guidelines are in L.A., and they're completely nonsensical. Day camps are open, schools are closed, parks and trails are open, playgrounds are closed. None of it seems to have any basis in reality at all. Well, and uh, it's also jarring that uh, the kids' default position because of socialization, these smart kids that you're talking about, and I have no doubt they are, is, uh, well, if the government says so, then it must be right because they're looking out for us, and so we should just accept, we should give them the benefit of the doubt and accept whatever received wisdom they convey. That's a problem generally, and it's not just uh, with respect to the kids. Uh, uh, a piece you wrote for the post-millennial on the most selfish act of the most selfish generation, you know, on their way out the door, as it were, uh, a final, uh, you know, a, a, perhaps their coup de grace, when it comes to selfishness, uh, the baby boomers. Yeah, I think that's part of it, too. Uh, some of these leaders are certainly closer to my age, like Whitmer. I think she's a Gen X with her authoritarian dictates. But I do see a um, proclivity among the generation that is, uh, you know, my parents' generation, um, to accept these restrictions for their own good. And this is a This is a generation that cast off everything their parents taught them, right? They said that everything our parents taught us was bad, uh, from traditional marriages to, you know, stable lifestyles to religion um, to, you know, the kind of government they had. And they certainly, um, you know, were part of the civil rights movement, which is a huge and essential part of American history and something we should be proud of. But uh, they, they threw off everything. And now they're telling us that we have to listen to these dictates, that we have to stay safe because everyone tells us to. These are the people who spent 1968 at Woodstock while there was an influenza pandemic that killed, I think, 100,000 Americans or something like that. And at the time, we were, what, 200 million um, in population. Mm-hmm. So... It's like they're just terrified now, um, and we have to subscribe to this terror as well. And I think part of that, too, is that there's this fear of death in the generation ahead of me that um, may stem from the complete, uh, you know. Godlessness. Godlessness, that's the word. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, once we get rid of faith, and, you know, organized religion is something that I'm part of. I know that's not for everybody, but. Faith is not even something that requires an organized religion. You can have a belief in God without, you know, going to a church or whatever, um, you know, if you want. <laughs> uh, but I think without a faith in a higher power, without an understanding that uh, this life on earth is not the only um, thing in the universe, 
it's easy to just look into that void and, and take a bunch of steps back and tell the rest of us we have to as well. Libby Evans, senior editor at the Post Millennial, postmillennial.com. Do check out her piece, which I'll tweet out again. COVID lockdowns are the most selfish act of the most selfish generation. Libby, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much. It's a nice day to start again. Come on, it's a nice day for a white wedding. It's a nice day to start again. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Yeah, and we start in uh, Falls Church, Virginia, where yesterday the Falls Church School Board voted unanimously to rename Thomas Jefferson Elementary School and George Mason High School. Oh, yeah, you thought the purge was over because of the the election results? Purge is over, just like COVID's over? No. The vote follows a six-month-long process, which included hours of public hearings, hundreds of submitted written public comments, a survey of the community to inform the board's decision. The school board chair, we took seriously the viewpoints and concerns raised by many students, parents, staff, community members. So, of course, all the stakeholders were surveyed in lieu of, uh, in lieu of uh, substantive thinking about uh, schools named after, I don't know, the uh, composer of the Declaration of Independence. So now the uh, committee, the least intelligent form of life is a committee. Thank you, Thomas. Well, like the committee that's been convened to come up with new names will uh, recommend five names to the school board after, I'm sure, another intensive public uh, comment process. Thomas Jefferson, George Mason, got to go. Uh-huh. The purge continues. The identitarian politics that undergirds the purge continues. I mentioned this yesterday in the conversation with uh, Dr. Joseph Ladapo, UCLA's Geffen Med- uh, School of Medicine. The uh, vaccine exemption at Cornell, flu vaccine exemption for people of color, required on campus except for people of color because of the history of uh, wrongdoing with respect to medical experimentation on people of color. Because the Tuskegee experiments happen, that means in 2020 America, we can't mandate a flu vaccine on campus. For forgetting whether or not mandating a flu vaccine is a good idea or not, we can't mandate a vaccine on campus for people of color, but we can for people who are not of color or whatever the terminology is. Uh, Fred, uh, Rick has, or Frederick has, but you can call him Rick. American Enterprise Institute has good peace in the Hill. The difference between civic education and constitutional education. Uh, important. Civic education, he writes, tends to focus on voting, protest, the need to combat, quote-unquote, injustice. This is all to the good, but it leaves little room for stodgy notions of obligation, complexity, or the importance of respecting processes even when you don't like the results. Oh, boy, what a concept that is. He was a one-time high school civics teacher before becoming a sort of policy scholar. What he is now, he's very good. He uh, notes a national survey of social studies teachers done by the Rand Corporation found that barely half think it's essential that students understand concepts like federalism, separation of powers, checks and balances, 
One third don't think it's essential that students embrace civic responsibilities like voting, jury duty. He um, points out the health of our republic depends on students learning that the norms of democratic, small d, democratic government are important in their own right and that the legitimacy of institutions cannot depend on whether we like the outcomes. Telling students to support their favorite candidates or causes is important. It's also pretty intuitive. To tell the truth, it's the easy part of civic education. What's harder and more important is teaching the habits of mind, not just the knowledge, that sustain the American system. Fealty to laws, respect for institutions, appreciation of checks and balances, as we were talking about at the top of the hour with uh, Professor Yu from UC Berkeley. The rule of law and a law that is knowable, thus legitimate, he uh, concludes, does uh, has civic education just doesn't aim high enough. That will require a vision of civics, civics that's unapologetically grounded in the harder stuff of constitutional education. And look, uh, from a lot of different angles, we're seeing the ignorance of the Constitution play itself out in the course of these electoral challenges, as well as in the course of the administration of elections, aren't we? And uh, and yet, what do we have going on in lieu of constitutional education, even in lieu of civic education at every level? Asinine stories like the one out of Cornell I just mentioned with respect to vaccine mandates. And did you see this one from Campus um, Campus Reform News? Ivy League librarians demand a world without policing <laughs> from their their little bubble of a, a library in an Ivy League campus. Uh, policing is the problem. We need, a, they called for a complete abolition of law enforcement. 13 abolitionist libraries, librarians are calling themselves, so certainly to invoke the abolitionists as it relates to slavery to now uh, related to law enforcement, demanding their colleges immediately begin the work of divesting from police and prisons. Constitutional education, civic education, uh, particularly the former, as Rick Hess envisions it, is a walk away from the intellectual poison of identitarian politics that, again, we are still seeing, and the purge goes on, and so will the fight. This is Dan Proft. The more you'll know. This is this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. With apologies to the Beastie Boys, you do have to fight for your right to party, and that is uh, even more the case in COVID 2020. That's what uh, New York City young Republicans attempted to do, a little confab they had in New Jersey. That has drawn the ire of Phil Murphy, the governor of New Jersey, of course, who's uh, trying to do his best Andrew Cuomo reaction to Max Public House opening in Staten Island uh, sort of response, uh, calling uh, the uh, young Republicans uh, beyond the pale for having their gala event in New Jersey and uh, saying that New Jersey law enforcement investigating this matter. So before uh, he is uh, taken away in cuffs to some undisclosed gulag, we figured we'd get a handle on what occurred and 
why this is so upsetting to Governor Murphy. Pleased to be joined by Vish Burra, the vice president of the New York City Young Republicans and executive producer to uh, Steve Bannon's War Room. Vish, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Are you enjoying your last couple of days of freedom or? As I responded to Governor Murphy myself as well, the after party is certainly not over, and I'm having a blast. And well, you come take me away in cuffs as I'm drinking on a bottle of Hennessy. Yeah, well, well, uh, you know, don't tempt him, I'm sure, because that certainly seems to be the disposition of these lockdown and bust governors like uh, Cuomo and Murphy. So you you put together this event. I, I'm surprised that there was even any facilities where you could have an event indoor in Jersey City. You know, we were surprised as well. It just so turns out as much as for Murphy's bluster, you know, he was saying on MSNBC the other day, his rules are the same as New York's, And actually, they're not, which is why we used a New Jersey venue. Uh, according to his rules, 100 150 people are allowed at the event as long as it's a religious or political activity. And as the New York Young Republicans, it is a political activity. It's our 108th gala. It's withstood the test of time through two world wars, the Spanish flu. This year is no different. We were you know, expected to execute it. We planned and intended to execute it. The entire New York State Democratic Party thought it was going to be uh, in New York, they did their best to shut it down, including Antifa, doxing us and all sorts of stuff. Lo and behold, the day of, you know, it turns out to be in Jersey City, completely out of the jurisdiction of Cuomo. And then uh, Phil Murphy finds out after the party's over that we utilize New Jersey and their laxer rules to make this gala happen. And now he has to answer to his crazy liberal base about why he didn't do anything about it, why he couldn't shut it down. And now he's moving around in a petulant and vindictive manner, trying to shut down the venue, which he ordered shut down and has us under criminal investigation as well, the club. And so, you know, there's a whole lot of egg on Murphy's face. And now he's, you know, reaching for straws, trying to create kabuki theater about like, you know, him being of a responsive to this. It's just crazy. I I assume that uh, he assumed that you would understand when the uh, guideline was uh, 150 people or less for political activities. That meant political activities meant things like defund the police or a Black Lives Matter event, not to prescribe political activities like thinking differently. Well, I'm sure that's what he intended, but it's not how it's actually practiced and executed. That's why, you know, we're in the letter of the law. If he's trying to say So you guys had you guys had you guys had fewer than 150 people at your gala. Obviously, the the hall was open and that seems to be we had, by the law. We had we had 150 people there. The okay. venue was keeping a head count there. The New Jersey State Police were on the premises making oh, really? sure we complied with all the rules. Right. And so if Governor Murphy is saying that we did something wrong, what he's essentially saying is that the New Jersey State Police didn't do their job while they were there watching over our event. Is that what he's saying, that his own police didn't do the job? I don't think that's right. I think they were there doing a great job and making sure we followed all the rules. You know, maybe uh, we need to scramble those uh, people that interrupted uh, Governor Murphy and his family at dinner and called him, well, names I don't want to repeat, but it was pretty entertaining. He was out with his uh, his family, and, and I, we don't, I don't support, uh, you know, going after people when they're out to dinner with their family, but of course that is the left's chosen method of operation, and so some people took it upon themselves to tell Phil Murphy what they thought about, and maybe he's still reeling from that exchange with respect to trying to provide political cover for what he's doing in New Jersey to make sure that he is acting in the saintly manner that Andrew Cuomo is. Well, uh, to be quite honest with you, if he felt bad about, you know, his family being approached that way, 
while they were trying to have dinner and enjoy themselves and have fun, you know, without masks on, why would he come after my family in a similar manner when we're trying to do the same thing? Mm. And so I don't, yeah. I don't think that's, I don't think that's right. I see it as vindictive. It's all a political play. This is not about what's right and wrong. This is about a will to power. And what they're trying to show is that they're more powerful than us, and they can shut down our party and our fun uh, if they want to, but they couldn't, and we showed them that back. We faked out Cuomo, dunked on Murphy, and they're just mad about it. And uh, with respect to uh, the, you know the, the policies in New Jersey, I don't know offhand what they are. I assume they're particularly restrictive, but even when you're open, so you know they post there's pictures posted, and they and so they're they're complaining about uh, all you young people not having masks on as well when you're posing for pictures, and so that was part of their criticism and suggestion that something was untoward there. Well, who's going to take pictures with their mask on? Don't be, <laughs> right. you know, come on, let's be, let's let's be serious, right? And, uh, and so, why and, should and we start now? Yeah. Yeah. And, and we're leaders, right? Leaders show their face. They, they are not afraid of anything. They show their face down, stand proud, stand tough. And they, and they, and it's to engender the confidence in you that you could stand behind us and that there's, that we have nothing to hide and we are ready. You know, we will stand strong and tough in the face of all adversity. That's what a leader does. Have you and guys so been, we, ha, have, has anybody been contacted by law enforcement or is that just uh, saber rattling by Murphy? It's saber rattling. I haven't heard a thing from from law enforcement. I'm sure they have my phone number. So, like, you know, there there there's no there's nothing. This is a lot of bluster. This is just a big show for his base. And we're actually, and that's why we're doing, you know, we're making the rounds in the media just to let everybody know that no, they haven't touched us. This is they're they're playing you again. Mm-hmm. You know, they're not. They're they're. This is all just bluster. And really, the the people who are hurt most are the are the venue owners. Because Murphy can't come after us, he went after the venue. Somebody, someone just trying to make ends meet, a small business just trying to, you know, uh, you know, put, put put work on the table for their workers. And we tried to work with them. That's why we had the the event there. And you know, again, Murphy's just being petulant, going after small business owners, just like Cuomo going after uh, Max Public House on Staten Island. Now, I'm from Staten Island, so I feel like I'm in the middle of you know all of this this persecution. But you know, this is the time. These are the kind of times that that produce the real patriots. Well, I'm sure uh, when Danny Presti, uh, you know, is allowed to go back onto his property, he'll buy you a drink when he hears uh, the details of this story. Vish Burra, vice president of the New York City Young Republicans and executive producer to Steve Bannon's War Room podcast. Vish, thanks so much for joining us and updating us. Uh, good luck out there. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Come on, Show.com. Welcome back to the show to close out uh, this edition. Uh, interesting post, uh, a circular chart uh, posted uh, by our friend Jeffrey Tucker over at the American Institute for Economic Research. 15 signs you might be in an abusive relationship. Listen to some of these. Fifteen signs you might be in an abusive relationship. I feel like this is uh, something like a Jeff Foxworthy bit. Uh, you might be in an abusive relationship if the person or entity dismisses your opinions. If the person or entity won't let you go out without permission. 
If the person or entity monitors your phone or emails. If the person or entity controls the finances or won't let you work. If the person or entity controls what you read, watch, and say. If the person or entity monitors everything you do. If the person or entity punishes you for breaking the rules, but the rules keep changing. If the person or entity won't allow you to question him or her or it. If the person or entity calls you names or shames you for being stupid or selfish. (laughs) From the Workplace Mental Health Institute. Not something that's conjured up to evoke the obvious place I'm going. If the person or entity tells you it is for your own good and that they know better. If the person or entity tells you you're crazy and no one agrees with you. If the person or entity gaslights you, challenges your memory of events to make you doubt yourself. Those signs, those are all signs you might be in an abusive relationship. And uh, with respect to the commentary about these signs from the Workplace Mental Health Institute, this nonprofit mental health space. This is the um, caption to the chart. Abusive relationships can arise anywhere with partners, friends, families, workplaces, or governments. If you can recognize these signs and are concerned you may be in an abusive relationship or acting in an abusive way, then don't panic. Take action and seek out help from a professional. We wish you well in your journey. Uh, Right. I I have a list of about, uh, I don't know, a couple of hundred politicians just off the top that I'm apparently in an abusive relationship with. I kind of knew it, but it's nice to put it in clinical terms like this. Seriously, this is so good. So good. Have you ever been in a more abusive interpersonal relationship than you are with government in this country right now? Think about that question. And with that, I leave you on this Wednesday. Thank you for joining us again. Please do so tomorrow, Thursday, where our friend Powerline Blogs, John Hinbreaker, will be sitting in for me. We'll catch you on Friday. This is the Dan Proft Show.